Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And for the past two weeks, in celebration of the opening of the opera season, we've been dipping into the Gilded Age world of divas and drama, focusing on the story of Gilded Age operatic superstar Lillian Nordica. As a special bonus treat, I wanted to share with you this episode from the Bowery Boys archives, in which Greg and Tom tell the story of a very different soprano that took New York, and indeed much of the world at that time, by storm. Her name was Jenny Lind, and she made her New York debut in 1850, years before Lillian Nordica was even born. Jenny Lind was a Swedish soprano who had been singing in staged opera in Europe and then launched an enormously lucrative and celebrity-driven concert career in America under the direction of master showman P.T. Barnum. Jenny's story is one of fame, exploitation, manipulation, and unrivaled publicity, all to earn Barnum a buck. The bulk of the money that Jenny earned herself, not an inconsiderable amount, went to charities and into philanthropy of her own choosing. In the end, it's a story of a young woman with an extraordinary voice and just how America's fascination and frenzy with celebrity perhaps really began. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are ready to whisk you off to another time. Back 170 years ago in the city's history. Oh, yes. We're going back to (laughs) the year 1850 and a set of nights that basically epitomize everything that we can't do at this particular moment (laughs) uh, here here in April of 2020. We're going to... Two nights, two very sold-out nights in a very crowded theater. So true. Thousands of people were literally packed into one of the city's largest performance halls of the day to hear performances by a visiting Swedish musical sensation. And we're not talking Robin, who actually I saw a few months ago at Madison Square Garden, um, and not even ABBA, actually. (laughs) No, we're not talking about Robin. We're not talking about ABBA. We're not even talking about Madison Square Garden. Um, We're going roughly 150 years before Robin would actually take us all by storm. This This is a different era, but it seemed that all of Europe at the time was had been cast under the spell of Jenny Lind who was an operatic soprano who was so fine uh, that they called her the, quote, Swedish Nightingale. Now, when Jenny arrived 
in the United States in 1850. She was she was almost 30 years old, but had already conquered much of Europe. And she was about to be sold to American audiences who had never heard of her. That job of importing her act and then selling her to American audiences would be handled, in fact, could only have been handled <laughs> by the illustrious showman himself, P.T. Barnum. The illustrious, or perhaps you could even say the greatest showman himself. <laughs> um, in fact, some portion of our audience will already be aware of the fact that the 2017 live musical film, The Greatest Showman, tells a highly fictionalized story of Barnum's life and includes a whole subplot that involves Jenny Lind. Miss Jenny Lind. Who's that? The opera singer? Singer? She's the most famous performer in all of Europe. She sold out La Scala a dozen times. Not to mention the French opera. Huh. What are you doing? Following you so you can introduce me to Miss Lynn. Introduce you? Yeah. I don't know her. Everybody knows. You just said so yourself. Yeah, exactly. You don't just march up to someone like this. Oh, person. Oh, she's a person. Well, yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> Miss Lynn. Yeah, and we're going to we're going to touch on that portrayal and the let's just say artistic license that the filmmakers took in depicting these particular historical events. We're going to look at that later in the show. Because the real Jenny Lind uh, was a musical sensation in her own right. She really caused, I would say, a frenzy from the moment she stepped foot on American soil. And nearly everywhere she performed during her two-year tour of the United States. It's such a stir, in fact, that they called it Lindmania. <laughs> Lindmania. Oh, to be whipped up into some Lindmania right now, Greg. That's what we need. Uh, Tom, we're going to do our part to bring it back right here on the Bowery Boys. That's why we're here, folks. It should be no surprise to listeners that old P.T. Barnum was chiefly responsible for much of the, the whipping up and frenzy-making in this story. He would start all of that popular excitement here in New York, in today's Battery Park, in debut performances of Jenny Lind at Castle Garden. Jenny Lind would be one of Barnum's greatest and certainly most financially rewarding triumphs. But that isn't to say that it was always smooth sailing for Jenny, because this story does have some drama in it as well. I mean, who was Jenny Lind? And what magic did she cast over New York at Castle Garden? And what happened to Barnum that caused things to go south? So take your seats as we take in a night of Jenny Lind at Castle Garden. So you've just told everyone to take their seats at Castle Garden in Battery Park. Mm -hmm. Is this is this literally where the story will be starting here? Well, we'll get there in a second. Uh, the first concert was here on September 11th, 1850. 
But I just want to describe the scene that greeted Jenny's vessel, the Atlantic, uh, when she sailed into New York Harbor 10 days earlier on September 1st, 1850. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So take us there, please. I will, with the help of the front page from the following day's New York Daily Tribune. All right. Imagine the front page, okay? I mean, we've all seen these broadsides. You know, it's kind of like the the old-fashioned New York Times. Six columns across the front, just enormous amounts of text, right? Five of those six columns of the front page of the New York Tribune were almost entirely dedicated to covering the arrival of Jenny Lind. I mean, are you telling me that there was nothing else going on in New York City? Is this possible? There were other things going on. I mean, the sixth column has little bits of local and national news. Turns out there there was even a murder story. But all the other news was basically swept from the front page in order to cover the story of the arrival of Jenny Lind. Was it like her, what was she wearing? Like, where is the boat docked? What did she eat? Was she like snacking on a sandwich when she got off? Like, what's what's Uh, going on? She was not snacking on a sandwich. The, The Tribune kicks it off with a poem on the top left, entitled simply, To Jenny Lind. I will spare you the reading of that poem right now. Oh, a um, little bit. Seriously, half of it is in Swedish. I didn't oh, even okay. understand it. <laughs> but it does start out, quote, Blue-eyed Vala, Brogy's daughter, speed from Cambria's Bartic shore. I mean, <laughs> I'm totally lost. I think that there's a lot of Norse mythological references going on that okay, are like way beyond right. me. Oh, right. But I'm assuming that most of the paper's front page dealt with her actual arrival. Yes. The the lead story, arrival of Jenny Lind, excitement at the landing, the long expectation is over. Jenny Lind has landed at our shores. It goes on to explain that, you know, large crowds were gathering around the Canal Street piers on the Hudson before noon, um, where, where they had erected a triumphal arcade that was hung with flags and everything. And Barnum was anxiously waiting, as were other notables, and of course, gaggles of journalists. And this was September 1st, 1850. Yeah. And Barnum has already built quite a reputation for himself as a showman by this time. Yeah, and we have an entire show on his life and career. It's number 225, uh, P.T. Barnum and the Greatest Show on Earth. But to summarize, he'd moved to New York in the 1830s, He bought out a popular museum in 1841, which he then turned into his American Museum. And that museum, naturally, was a huge draw for both tourists and New Yorkers alike. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of people every year paid to see his exhibits, his wax figures, our favorite, his historical dioramas. Oh, those sound amazing too love the dioramas and of course all of his hoaxes hoaxes like the fiji mermaid um but also just curiosities you know like tom thumb who he had introduced in 1842 and then had taken on a tour of europe a couple years later so all of this his museum these curiosities made barnum very very famous and very wealthy And so it's all happened by the time of our story Mm -hmm. right here, when Jenny is pulling into New York Harbor. Yes, Barnum and the others are anxiously awaiting her arrival on September 1st, 1850. Finally, after 1 p.m., a cannon announced the steamer's arrival, and soon the vessel carrying Jenny was in sight. Now, as the Atlantic, uh, her, her ship, approached the shore, 
the crowd saw the passengers on the main deck getting ready for arrival. And where was Jenny? Uh, To quote from the article, On the top of a light deckhouse sat the subject of the day's excitement, the veritable Jenny Lind, as fresh and rosy as if the sea had spared her its usual discomforts. At her side stood Mr. Jules Benedict, the distinguished composer, and Signor Giovanni Belletti, the celebrated bass, her artistic companions. So they were up there. Barnum and the other VIPs were were then taken out to the steamer and climbed aboard, and he presented her immediately with a big bouquet of flowers. Wow, so much pomp and circumstance here. Um, I'm so glad she arrived fresh and rosy. (laughs) Yes, as if the sea had spared her. Many of the paper's journalists were actually being paid by Barnum, we should add. The papers went into great detail about how she looked, of course, how she was dressed uh, in a, quote, visite of rich black cashmere over a dress of silver gray with a pale blue silk hat and a black veil. Um, They talked about her uh, fine forehead, her, her wavy brown hair, her light blue and joyous eyes. Uh, They even mentioned her silky little lapdog, which had been a present from Queen Victoria. So, like, everything, (laughs) she just brought everything along with her, including a little dog, too. Yes. So when did they finally get to the Canal Street dock? Uh, To quote again from the article, quote, As they neared Canal Street Pier, the interest was increased by some 30 or 40,000 people congregated on all the adjacent piers and shipping, as well as the roofs and windows fronting the water. From all quarters, crowds of persons could be seen hurrying down to the Atlantic's dock. Did you say thirty to 40,000 people? <laughs> yes. So, so just to put this in context, that's more than 10 times the number of screaming fans who awaited the Beatles. Yeah. In uh, 1964, mm-hmm. out, of, out of Kennedy. So how did they finally even get her out of there? I mean, I can't imagine 40,000 people crushing into the piers. <laughs> Actually, I guess sometimes on the, during the pride parades. But what I mean is you've like... Been, you've been it, among the 40,000, I think. Yes, yes. But instead of Lady Bunny, actually, this was Jenny Lind. <laughs> Barnum Barnum had his uh, had a fine carriage and horses that were waiting at the bottom of a gangway. They hopped in and rode off into the crowds through a quote number of triumphal arches of evergreens and flowers. All of them, all these arches, proclaiming "Welcome to Jenny Lind." See, you know, this is how. I mean, New York has failed Robin. This is how we should have greeted Robin when she came to town a few months ago. We just don't we just don't welcome visiting pop stars in the city like we used to. No. I'm actually surprised that there weren't any injuries from this. Oh, there were, actually. Um, uh, the Tribune states that five or six people had been pushed down into the docks during the crunch of people, and they had to be rescued. Um, and then as the carriage was driving through the crowd, people lunged toward it in order to see the Swedish nightingale. Uh, but people got crushed. Some, quote, 40 or 50 persons lay crushed in the inexorable crowd, stretching out their hands and crying for help. This is pandemonium. And by the way, where was she even going? Like, where was the carriage going? Where was she staying? They they were making their way through all this madness as hundreds of bouquets of flowers were raining down upon her. Toward her hotel, she was staying at the Irving House, um, which was located at Chambers and Broadway. Once inside, though, she had a window that was facing Broadway, 
and she waved and blew kisses to the roaring crowds. There were thousands of people actually down surrounding the hotel on Broadway and on Chambers. And that night, I mean, she was probably pretty tired, but things continued out in the streets. There was a full-on concert given for her in her honor under her windows in the streets. And there were reportedly like 20,000 people packed into the streets around her, <laughs> around her hotel. Okay, so it's true, but the, the newspapers were reporting there was like nothing else going on. It's true. <laughs> so, so Jenny Lind here, she's made this first spectacular first impression on September the 1st. Mm-hmm. And when were the actual concerts scheduled for? Well, the first of two concerts were scheduled for 10 days later on September 11th. Although they weren't actually sure where they were going to take place or at what time. Wait, they didn't know. Well, they hadn't even sold the tickets yet. Barnum oh. Barnum wanted to create complete pandemonium first. I mean, there was no like, there wasn't a huge ticket market or StubHub or TKTS. Like, you know, people <laughs> bought same day tickets or bought things for, you know, the, the near future. It wasn't crazy that there weren't any tickets sold yet. But okay. he wanted to create that excitement first. And then he planned, actually, for these first two shows to auction them off. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. So he's either like a very cunning businessman here, mm-hmm. or I can also see a world where he's extremely unprepared. <laughs> I think it's the former. I think that he knew how to read the public. But it is where we get into a little bit of the drama because Jenny Jenny was also was also very famous for being philanthropic. She was beloved for her character and for her life story. And she had committed to giving away most of her earnings to charities. Barnum, of course, was not going to do that. He was going to use Jenny's charitable intentions and her generosity in his own marketing of these concerts for the tour. And that was making her kind of uncomfortable. So she was, in fact, here on her first day amazed by this reception in New York, but also kind of concerned by the blatant commercialism, you know, that Barnum practiced. Well, I mean, that was the Barnum brand. That's what he was principally known for. But maybe that reputation hadn't totally reached the Swedish Nightingale. He was famous for that here in New York and in the United United States. But let's just say that she immediately realized that the offer that she had accepted wasn't really totally fair to her or to the charities for which, you know, she was trying to raise this money. And I'm going to go into their arrangement, the details of that arrangement here in just a few minutes. But I think we need to, like, step back a little bit, maybe properly reintroduce ourselves to Jenny Lind here, okay? Okay. Or or should I say Johanna Maria Lind? Jenny was her nickname. She was born 200 years ago this year, Tom. Oh. Um, on um, October 6th, 1820 in Stockholm, Sweden. Oh, well, this October, I hope that somebody is planning a big party. I mean, this is a Jenny Lind bicentennial. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I'm pretty sure that there's probably a big party planned. I just want to make sure that we're we're there, Greg. Well, and certainly, hopefully, Sweden is doing something, I I would imagine. Now, about Jenny's early years, I want to quote from a 1977 American Heritage article written by Ruth Hume, because it is beautifully written, and quite honestly, I could not say this better myself, all right? Okay. Quote, 
Jenny was the illegitimate daughter of an ill-natured schoolteacher named Anne-Marie Felborg and a good-natured wastrel named Nicola Lind. At the age of nine, she was discovered in storybook fashion. She was sitting at her window one day, serenading her cat, when a ballerina's maid passed by, heard her extraordinary voice, and rushed off to tell her mistress about it. The dancer arranged an audition for Jenny, and she was accepted as a student at the Royal Theatre School. Wow. So, <laughs> so let me get this straight. Jenny, this daughter of a good-natured wastrel... Yes. <laughs> ...was identified at an early age for having this extraordinary vocal talent. Yeah. And in her teens, she was even a court singer a singer for the court of the royal family of Sweden. But it wasn't until she was age 21 and sent to Paris to train um, with the world-renowned Spanish teacher Manuel Garcia that she was introduced to, let's just say, where she was discovered by the world. And from descriptions, it sounds like Jenny had a real star quality, as they might say. Oh, yeah. Today. I mean, she was young, fresh. She had a perfect tone quickly gained respect and a lot of very famous admirers, I should say. She returned to Sweden, then became a star for the Royal Swedish Opera, becoming the most renowned vocalist in Europe, okay? This is in her mid-20s. Mm. Composers came from all over Europe to hear her and to write music with her in mind. In 1844, actually, Felix Mendelssohn fell in love with her and wrote many pieces with her in mind. She was devastated, in fact, when he died in 1847, when he was age 38. So Jenny, by this point, then, has become something of a muse for European musicians and composers. Oh, yeah. And Mendelssohn wasn't the only one here, by the way. She also stole the heart of one author named Hans Christian Andersen. Wow, the Danish children's author. Um, mm -hmm. Hans was also in love with Jenny Lind? Yes. <laughs> a, a, you could say a storybook romance? <laughs> I mean, in fact, in 1847, he wrote, quote, No books, no men have had a more ennobling influence upon me as a poet than Jenny Lind, unquote. Wow. Um, she did love him, but she loved him like a brother. She did not love him romantically. Nevertheless, he wrote several stories that were inspired by her, including his story, The Nightingale, which was about a king who became fascinated by a beautiful songbird. So that must be where she gets her nickname, the Swedish Nightingale. Yes. And like that bewitching bird of the fairy tale, Tom, mm -hmm. she flew around Europe performing everywhere. And in fact, it was these famous relationships that she made that helped build her fame that actually like she had an aura presence around her. She was almost like a living goddess and she sold out shows wherever she went. She was so renowned that by the mid 1840s, she happened to come to the attention of a prominent American who was visiting Europe at the time, P.T. Barnum. Right, because in the mid-1840s, Barnum is touring around Europe with his sensational act, General Tom Thumb. Now, it was during this tour, when he was with Tom Thumb, this is when he first heard of Jenny Lind, okay? And then he went back to America and then kind of like simmered over it. And then by the fall of 1849, 
he decided that he wanted to bring her to the United States. Which is interesting, you know, because most people, when you think about Barnum, you think of gimmicks or hoaxes, but a singer? Yeah, I mean, a national tour of an opera diva was a completely different ballgame here. And he knew it, though, at the time. It's, it's true. From his autobiography, Inasmuch as my name has long been associated with humbug, mm-hmm. and the American people suspect that my capacities do not extend beyond the power to exhibit a stuffed monkey skin or a dead mermaid... I can afford to lose $50,000 in such an enterprise as bringing to this country, in the zenith of her life and celebrity, the greatest musical wonder in the world, provided the engagement is carried out with the credit to the management. But of course, Barnum was not about to lose any money here. It wasn't like he was being altruistic. He wanted to make money on this. In fact, he might have been hoping that Jenny was perhaps a little naive about finances, But he would be very quickly mistaken. But how would he even negotiate with her when he's already back in the States? Well, at the end of 1849, he he sent an agent. He had a London agent named John Hall Hilton. Sent him to go find Jenny Lynn with his offer to tour the United States. She did end up signing a contract on January 9th of 1850. But it was a bit trickier than Barnum may have expected. And why is that? So she agreed to do 150 shows and to be compensated $1,000 a night. Okay, now with inflation, that is about $31,000 a night in 2020 money. That is extraordinary. That is not all. Okay, so a lot of her expenses would be paid. That was part of the agreement as well, including... All the expenses of her favored conductor, who you mentioned, Julius Benedict, Mm -hmm. and an additional male vocalist, who you also mentioned earlier, Giovanni Belletti. Mm -hmm. On top of all of this, he also agreed to pay for a maid, a manservant, a secretary, (laughs) (laughs) a 60-piece orchestra, and a carriage with horses. So I guess what I'm saying is like, The diva got her entourage. (laughs) Well, she needed an entourage. I mean, I got sort of like distracted by the manservant requirement. (laughs) Hey, yeah. Really, I guess the jaw-dropping part is that she's getting a 60-piece orchestra. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm sure that Barnum realized that if he was going to promote her as the, quote, greatest singer in the world, she'd need to look the part and sound the part. Yeah, I mean, you you don't skimp on the Swedish Nightingale, right? Uh, She also required all of that money, by the way, in advance to be Hmm. deposited in her London bank account. So that's a grand total. When you add it all up, all of those fees for the manservants and the horses and all that, it's a grand total of, back then, $187,500. Or in today's dollars, Tom, with inflation, that is almost $6 million. I have a feeling that Barnum didn't just have that money laying around because that would have been a lot of nickel admissions to his American Museum. Yeah, absolutely. And he didn't have much room to really push back either because Jenny, as you had mentioned, was raising money for her favored charities back home. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't have looked good to haggle 
too much with her. I think the press would have picked that up really quickly. She had the upper hand. So Barnum had to get all this money. He essentially begged and borrowed and even mortgaged every property that he owned. In fact, he was only about $5,000 shy of his total that he needed um, when a Philadelphia minister actually stepped up to the plate and footed the rest of that bill, loaned him $5,000. A minister? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a minister seems kind of a surprising choice for a financial partner for P.T. Barnum, no? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little weird, right? Um, well, it was believed that a grand Jenny Lind tour would actually promote morality. And honestly, he wasn't wrong. I mean, you know, Jenny Lind's reputation was already kind of polished as this, like, pure moral example. Barnum finally has the money. Now he has to spend, essentially, the spring and summer. He has to spend all this time making sure that Americans will want to go see Jenny Lind. He wants to be sure that they are very, very well aware of who Jenny Lind is. Because at this point, nobody in America had actually heard Jenny Lind sing. Unless, I guess, they had been to Europe and just had happened to attend a concert. Yeah. So he essentially went on a publicity tour, like unlike any other that he had done, commissioning biographies of Jenny Lind, making merchandise, hats, and articles of women's clothing, just drumming up a fervor, as only Barnum can do, drumming up this fervor for a woman who most of these people were never going to see. I mean, just think of it that way. He wanted mm-hmm. millions to fall in love with her, but like they couldn't all actually go see her. You know, in a way, I would say Barnum was even creating the original FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. <laughs> yeah. It was essentially, yeah, I mean, he was essentially presenting this performer as an angel sent on earth. And like, why wouldn't you want to go see her? Well, we'll get to that angel on stage in New York City right after this. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we left off with Jenny. At the beginning of the show, we left her in New York in early September of 1850, preparing for the most highly anticipated concert ever scene in New York, Mm -hmm. and a concert for which tickets were going to be auctioned off. Right. But something here is amiss. Yeah, Jenny realized that she wasn't getting a fair deal. Now, you mentioned that she she was getting paid $1,000 a performance, Mm -hmm. but Barnum was in a position to make many times that amount, especially as he was milking this publicity machine of his 
So she actually forced him to renegotiate. Oh, um, so what actually ended up happening? Like, what were her final terms here? Well, she still got her $1,000 per concert, but she limited his take to $5,500 per performance, which is a lot of money. She would then receive anything that came in over that amount. I mean, that is huge sums of money, right? So no. if $1,000 in 1850 is about 31000 or 33000 something like that today, mm-hmm. for that one concert, and Barnum's take, that 5500 mm-hmm. which today would be about $180,000, that's per concert, right? Yeah. yeah, that gives you an idea of like how this was, how big this business was. And remember, she was already, she was ready to give all or most of her proceeds away to charities, particularly those that were funding public schools back in Sweden. And so these terms that you just described were essentially renegotiated once she got here to the United States. That's right. And then soon after, they settled on a location, too. The concerts would be held at Castle Garden, the remains of which are still standing today in Battery Park. Oh, yeah. We love Castle Gardens. One of our favorite places. Actually, or should we say Castle Clinton, right? Yes, yes. Um, Because the structure was originally built as a defensive fort, which they called Castle Clinton. Yes, which was finished in 1811. And that was a large circular fort um, that sat at the time on a small man-made island that, that had been constructed just off the southern end of Manhattan Island. Although, because the War of 1812 never really got up to New York Harbor, this fort, thankfully, never really saw much action. Right. And then it would be handed over to the city by the federal government in the early 1820s. Um, And then that is where its story takes kind of a wacky turn, because the city then repurposed this fort, Castle Clinton, into a performance hall. And it would also get a new name, Castle Garden. And it was a giant space. It was one of the largest spaces in New York. But remember, it's also sticking out here in the water. Yeah. It's because, in the harbor. Right. Yeah. At, the, at this time, in, at the time of our story, this theater sat out on this small island, but it was connected by a bridge, a land bridge. They wouldn't actually fill in Battery Park around it uh, until the 1860s, years after our story. By that time, it had changed again into an immigration processing center. And we have a whole show um, on this, by the way, in our back catalog, if you'd like to know more. But back here in 1850, mm-hmm. right, Castle Garden then is, no surprise, selected. It's a beautiful place for great concerts. And tickets get auctioned off for that first show on September 11th, 1850. Yes, the first shows were were actually designated, these first two shows, as fundraisers uh, for charity. And two days before, uh, the tickets went on sale as an auction. And how many tickets were there? Um, I've seen varying accounts of this. Um, I've read that there were almost 4,500 tickets uh, that had been sold for the first concert alone, um, and that it netted $24,753. That's about $820,000 today. Wow. Um, Although the next day's New York Evening Post claimed in its uh, front page coverage that, quote, there could not have been less than 6,000 persons present, which is quite a claim. Yeah, I would say this is sort of unbelievable, honestly. Yeah. I mean, just putting this into perspective into today's 
theater world, right? Mm-hmm. So like the Gershwin Theater, for instance. Home to home today to Wicked. Home to Wicked, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is Broadway's largest theater in mm-hmm. terms of seats, right? So that's the largest. And it can seat 1,933 people. Right. So this is actually more than double of that number, almost triple that one news report is to be believed. And there are some now iconic illustrations of this first night. And we'll put some on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. But imagine it. Castle Garden was a circular theater, right? The rows of seats were stretching around about three quarters of the theater on multiple levels, balconies. And the rest of that that circle was occupied by the stage, which thrust forward into the crowd. Now, in this illustration of the evening, we see every seat taken, every standing room taken, staircases taken, with Jenny standing in a, in a white dress, commanding the attention at the front of the stage. And behind her stands her 60-person orchestra. Now, to quote from the next day's Evening Post, Jenny Lynn's first concert, the great musical festival which came off at Castle Gardens last evening, was successful in every respect, in numbers, in enthusiasm, in the completeness of the arrangements. It was everything that it was expected to be, and on the whole, must be recorded as the grandest display of the kind that has ever taken place in the city. So a glowing review, needless to say. Quite a claim, too. And it goes on to explain how carriages had lined up along Broadway for a mile, waiting to get to Castle Gardens, and how the theater had been divided into three sections, red, white, and blue. So then how was the actual concert? Well, there were some warm-up acts. The orchestra uh, performed a rather, quote, stiff overture, according to this review. Uh, Then Signor Belletti sang a piece by Rossini. But then came Jenny, quote, The audience were on the tiptoe of expectation, and when she emerged from the door at the back of the stage, broke forth in a tempest of plaudits. For several minutes, the building resounded with clapping of hands, stomping, cheering, and every other demonstration of applause. And then finally she sang. She sang Casta Diva from Bellini's Norma. Now, unfortunately, there are no recordings of Jenny Lind that survived today, but we can get an idea of what she must have sounded like by listening to a, just a moment of Maria Callas singing the same number, Casta Diva, from Norma in 1954. Post continued, the audience confessed at once by a simultaneous burst of feeling that they recognized the unquestionable supremacy of this artist. They were not electrified by any miracle of execution, but they were surprised by the wonderful combination of strength with sweetness in a voice entirely at the command of its possessor. 
And so I imagine that the rest of the concert here was greeted in much the same enthusiasm. Yeah, and she sang several more operatic numbers um, along with some Swedish songs. And she sang a special number written for the occasion, a greeting to America uh, with words by Bayard Taylor, um, an American poet. So I'm imagining that all of this is very refined, right? It sounds like a very elegant night at the opera. Mm -hmm. And yet, I just have to think that somehow with P.T. Barnum in the very middle of all this, it's like, it's a little bit at odds to me, I have to say. Well, at the end of this debut concert, after all the rapturous and thunderous applause, he took to the stage to address the crowd. He complimented and thanked Miss Lind on her fine performance. And then he produced from his pocket a piece of paper. He announced that he was going to read it aloud, even though Miss Lind had asked him not to. <gasps> Drama. But to quote the Evening Post, he could not refrain from doing what he considered an act of justice to the noble generosity of the noble Swede. So Barnum announced to the crowd that under an arrangement that the two of them had settled on, she would be receiving no less than $10,000 for these two first performances, and she was giving her entire amount to charities in New York City. Oh, I bet the crowd went wild when they heard this. They absolutely did. And, and then he proceeded to read off the list of charities from his piece of paper. She was giving $3,000 to the fire department, $2,000 to the Musical Fund Society, and then she was giving $500 each to another 10 charities, all of which were shelters and, or homes or asylums, as they were called, including the Home for the Friendless, the Colored and Orphan Asylum, the Home for Colored and Aged Persons, the New York Orphan Asylum, and, and several more. And it must have been very welcome news, obviously, to these charities. They certainly appreciated it. As did the crowds, of course, who suddenly felt that, you know, those sky-high ticket prices that they had bid on in the ticket auctions were suddenly justified. And how did Jenny feel about the manner in which Barnum, well, I guess, bragged pretty much about her philanthropy here? I mean, yeah. was was she comfortable with this kind of presentation? No. First of all, she strongly disliked the whole ticket auction thing. She didn't like how it, in general, drove up ticket prices. And you can imagine that that probably created kind of a, kind of an uncomfortable dynamic, you know, between the two of them. Oh, really? You think? Seriously, because Jenny was giving basically all or most of her money to charities, and Barnum, on the other hand, was actually using that fact, okay, her generosity to sell more tickets and to even like to drive up the ticket prices. And on top of it, it wasn't like he was giving away his portion of the profits. Barnum was actually privately benefiting from Lynn's generosity. I mean, that's Barnum for you, I guess. I mean, he is known for profiteering. I suppose that's true. So anyway, so from here, so this is legendary shows here in New York. And so then they left New York, right? So, mm -hmm. and they went, Jenny Lind and Barnum went on an American tour? Yes, which is sort of outside of the scope of today's show. But let's just say that the entire country, you know, had been following the news here of Jenny's concerts in New York City. This was national news. 
And Barnum had done such a brilliant job with advanced publicity and getting her biography out to the masses, you know, that as they toured, she packed in the crowds and, and she really raised tremendous amounts of money nearly everywhere that she played. Um, first, along the East Coast, she played in Boston and Philadelphia and Washington, then down through the South to Charleston. She went to Havana and then had a very successful concert series in New Orleans. And don't forget all that Jenny Lind merch. <laughs> and yeah, some of that was produced in tandem with Barnum. You know, he was sort of licensing out her name and making money off of it. But there were th some things like, you know, entire lines of Jenny Lind clothing, you know, that were outright ripoffs. I mean, people were <laughs> even stealing her hair from the brushes and combs in the hotels that she stayed in and selling right, well, that's, that. That's just that's just weird. Um, but the, <laughs> but all the rest of it, though, was probably pretty good for publicity. Yeah. Um, you know, a Jenny Lind brooch. What's wrong with that? Nothing. That's why I've never made fun of yours, Greg. <laughs> My collection of Jenny Lind brooches, you mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, be... I can't see you right now, but I'm hoping that you've got at least one of those Jenny Lind brooches on. Well, you know, just just leave that to your imagination. You'll just have to keep, I'll keep you guessing. This tour then continued through Mississippi, Tennessee, St. Louis, Louisville, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia. And by this time, it was June of 1851, and the tension between Jenny and Barnum had really not resolved. And so here in Philadelphia on June 9th of 1851, Jenny broke her contract with Barnum. Well, this is could be potentially bad for business for both of them. Was the breakup acrimonious? Was it nasty? Surprisingly, no. According to the terms of her original contract, she was allowed to break it off after fulfilling a certain number of concerts. And so got to that point and she parted ways and stayed, you know, on good terms with Barnum. And after all, I think it would be hard for him not to be nice to her, given mm -hmm. just how much money she had made for him. And that was June 1851. And so was the tour over? No, Jenny was now in charge of her own tour. And oh. she... She continued it on. Uh, she continued to sell out venues throughout the country. She even performed in Canada over the course of the next 11 months. And the next May, on May 24th of 1852, she returned for a farewell concert back at Castle Gardens. And by this time, Jenny had actually married her new musical director, a man named Otto Goldschmidt. Oh, so was she... Did people call her... Jenny Lind Goldschmidt now? Because that sounds pretty cool. Um, actually, they called her Madam Goldschmidt. Thank you very oh. much. <laughs> the Tribune wrote the next day after her farewell concert, Madam Goldschmidt's farewell. Castle Garden presented a wonderful spectacle last evening. 7,000 were as quietly seated as if they had been 700, and Jenny Lynn's last concert in America was as supremely triumphant as the magnificent genius of the artist and the warmest wishes of her friends could have desired. Inferior artists may bow adieu to the applause of clapping hands, but Jenny Lind leaves us amid the murmur of beating hearts. And just like that, the Swedish Nightingale 
sashayed away. <laughs> or at least sailed or flew away. away. Or, <laughs> or flew away. <laughs> or flew away <laughs> to England four days later. By that point, in concerts only for Barnum, she had earned $350,000, most of which she donated to charities. Barnum had made at least half a million dollars on promoting Jenny Lind. By the way, just for those greatest showman fans out there, fans of the Hugh Jackman movie, if it's not clear, let's make it very clear now, she never had the hots for P.T. Barnum. Well, first of all, P.T. Barnum did not look like Hugh Jackman, but that's another story, okay? That is a totally, that is a valid point. And let's just say she didn't look like Rebecca Ferguson. But anyway, all of that, that relationship, all of that was an invention of the film. Right, which they, you know, artistic license. But in reality, Jenny and her husband, Otto Goldschmidt, would sail from New York and live for a few years in Germany, but then live out the rest of their lives in England. Um, She raised three children. She still, she performed occasionally, um, but she became a voice professor uh, at the Royal College of Music. And Jenny Lind Goldschmidt died in 1887 at 67 years old. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have some beautiful illustrations of what the night might have looked like here at Castle Garden, and some great pictures of Castle Garden, and a few, both, of course, of Miss Lind and P.T. Barnum. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.